You're listening to this week's excerpt from the Dear Prudence podcast. To get the full-length members-only version every week, join Slate Plus at slate.com slash prudipod. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show. Once again, and as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is Colin Atrophy Hagendorf, a writer and podcaster from New York living in Pittsburgh. Their memoir, Slice Harvester, is about eating a plain slice from every pizzeria in Manhattan, New York City history, and quitting drinking. Their podcast, Radio Harvester, features long-form interviews with artists, activists, musicians, zine makers, and other countercultural types. Colin, Welcome. Thank you. What's good, Daniel? How are you? You know, I'm doing great. I I just had to take uh, the intro to this episode again because I accidentally used the wrong name for myself, um, which I just feel like really kind of accurately describes where I'm at today. Um, The kind of day you're having? The kind of day I'm having where I'm just like, do I know my own name? Do I know where I am? Am I doing anything I should be doing? Let's find out. It's a talking head song. (laughs) <laughs> it is. I'm, I'm in a very talking heads place today, and I think that that's going to be the type of advice that I end up doling out uh, this afternoon. So Great. Yeah. How are you? How's everything going? Have you had any good pizza lately? No, I live in Pittsburgh. I don't uh, know. Is that bad? I don't know. Yeah, no, the pizza is not good here. It's it's uh, it's not good at all. The uh, You know, I left, I did, I wrote that book about pizza, and then I immediately left New York City. Like, it got published in... August 2015, and then I moved that October to Texas. Mm-hmm. You were just like, I'm done. Pizza's terrible. Yeah, kind of. And then I came to Pittsburgh where the pizza is also pretty bad. There's like a, you know, there might be an, an all right place I haven't been to yet. But uh, no, the last good slice I had was when I was last in New York visiting my family. Well, I can't promise you any good pizza today, but I can promise you the opportunity to help people fix the many, many problems that they have going on in their lives. That's what I'm out to do. I just want to fix people's problems. I'm right there with you, my friend. I'm right there with you. Would you go ahead and read our first letter? Yeah. Uh, The subject is roommate danger. Dear Prudence, I'm, parentheses, illegally subletting one room of a two-bedroom apartment with my girlfriend. We're both women. The man on the lease for the other bedroom returned last week after a month away, and he's been a terror. He accused us of stealing, losing, and breaking his things. Obviously, we didn't. Last week, he broke into my room while I was sleeping alone and stood over me screaming and then tried to call the police on us. Since then, he's mostly calmed down and is generally just snide. We avoid him as much as possible, but I can't get over how afraid I am. I don't leave my bedroom when I'm home. I don't eat meals or make noise. I don't use the living room. And I go to the bathroom with 911 already dialed on my phone. How do I get over this fear and actually live in the apartment again? We can't afford to break the sublease, and my partner works late. I feel like he's going to hurt me if I breathe wrong. He's moving out in a few weeks, but I don't know if I'll make it that long. Oy vey. Yeah, this one sucks. Yeah, this one is... This one sucks so much. Yeah. What a terrible situation. Yeah. Um, I feel like... 
all of my thoughts about it hinge on the sentence he's moving out in a few weeks. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Uh, I just feel like my if it if this was like an a situation with no end in sight, my advice would be completely different. But in that in the in the knowing that it's there's a time, I think put a lock on your door, buy some pepper spray, and just try to keep it cool for a couple weeks and ride it out is what I would do. My only thing to add, in addition to the lock and pepper spray, which I think is great. Um, is just crash at friends' houses as much as you can. Oh yeah, that's really good thinking. I, I you know, I mean, I, 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 I understand that you may not want to leave your girlfriend alone, and if you guys have some mutual friends, maybe you guys can both make arrangements for this. But if it's just a matter of getting through the next couple of weeks, you know, alive and safe, um, spend as much, you know, tell your friends like I'm in danger from this guy I'm living with. He's moving out in a few weeks. Can I spend the next couple of nights on your couch and maybe rotate through a couple of pals? Like, do that. Yeah, falling back on support structures is and like community stuff is so important. And I also just I want to just say I cannot imagine the kind of uh impact this would have on like my productivity and just like general ability to exist in the world if I was scared in my own home. Like I this is such a such an like an awful just fundamentally awful situation. I really feel for this person. Yeah. Yeah, I, um, I cannot imagine waking up in the middle of the night to find your roommate standing over your bed screaming. Yeah, I've had, I've had situations similar to that, but I was, we were all drunks. And so it was, the volatility was sort of just part of it. Yeah. When you're um, kind of living uh, on the edges where it's sort of like every day is very extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah. It's for, different. For, yeah. For this one, I would say the lock is great. If you have uh, friends who will take you in for a couple of nights, do that, whatever it takes, stay out of the house as much as you need to. Um, and, and just prioritize your own safety until he's gone. Yeah. Also document everything in case a police report has to ever be filed. I am like 90% anti calling the cops ever. Um, but sometimes you got to do what you got to do. And I'm never going to shame anybody for, uh, trying to use like structures of the state to avoid, um, violence from men. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, if that's got to happen, just keep a keep a detailed list of like on this date this happened, on this date this happened, and that way it looks more official. Yeah, and I think especially because it does not sound like this is the kind of person who wants to call the police in part because they're worried about their own illegal sublet. So I'll just say, um, it, it, when it comes to being in physical danger, like you know, there's there's just some situations where sometimes that becomes absolutely necessary. And so I think documenting and being prepared um, will be helpful. And yeah, look out for yourself. At a certain point, don't worry about the illegal sublet. Worry about if he is, you know, trying to harm you. Yeah, for sure. I would also say look up the the laws in the city where you live, uh, writer in, or that was awkward. You know what I'm trying Letter to say. Writer. Letter I got writer. You. I got you. Letter writer. Uh, look up the... Um, Look up the laws, the tenants' rights laws in the city where you live, because I know in New York, even illegal subletters have a wide variety of rights. And calling the cops on someone for being violent to you will not get you in housing court. Right. Um, like the two, the inefficiency of the like the various bureaucracies in a city's government will oftentimes mean that one has no bearing on the other. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's a really good point, too. I think um, contacting your local tenants' right board will just go a long way towards making you feel like you know what your options are, you know what your rights are, and you don't feel like, well, he's on the lease and I'm not. So therefore, I Mm -hmm. have absolutely no recourse because it sounds like that's kind of the unspoken assumption in this letter. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, this sounds really untenable. I wish you the best. Get that lock. Get that pepper spray. You know, look out for yourself. Yeah, I hope that you have that apartment to yourself in a few weeks and are just get to kick your feet up on the table and relax. Right. And and if for any reason, because it sounds like this is a pretty volatile dude, if for any reason he changes his mind about moving out or he does not move out, um, you know, make whatever arrangements you have to. Like, don't feel like you have to stay there um, any longer than you need to. Like, if you just can't do this anymore live somewhere else. Again, not that it sounds like you have tons and tons of options if you're illegally subletting to live with your girlfriend, but if anyone else can provide you with a place to stay, go for it. Yeah, 100%. All right, slightly different kind of problem in this next letter. The subject line is family heirloom accountant. Dear Prudence, for many years, my husband and I have used his beloved family accountant to run our small business. I've never been wild about the guy, but my husband has been so adamant about using him that I haven't put up much of a fight. However, I finally spoke to another accountant and discovered that the guy has withheld giving me ownership of the business because he thinks a wife should be taken care of financially by her husband. I'm livid, but I know I'm in part culpable because I didn't press hard enough for answers. However, I think my husband's to blame for shutting down my concerns, and I think this guy should lose his license. Do I have any recourse? (laughs) Oh, boy. I got a lot of thoughts about this guy. All right. Hit me with him. Okay. Um, First of all, do I have any recourse? Me personally, uh, a person that didn't graduate college and ate a bunch of pizza, and that's the thing that I'm known for, I have no idea what the recourse is for holding an accountant accountable. Uh, I will say, can I say fuck this guy on this podcast? Yes, you can say fuck this guy on any podcast, I think, at this point. Fuck this guy. Uh, Fuck that guy so much. Uh, He just get, first of all, get a new accountant. Tell your husband to eat one and that his family guy can go to hell because this is not, I like, I want to feel, I've been trying to be more sympathetic to men um, as like a compassion practice or something when I do my 12 step, you know, whatever, Uh, like try to find a way to feel, send out thoughts of compassion to people that you don't like. And I just send them to like men overall. Um, Sure. You can do that. Yeah, you know, I'm working on it because I feel like they're people, you know, but um, I just, re- you know, and I, and so the part of me that's trying to work on that is like, maybe the husband has a thing with his family and the guy's relationship and it's sympathetic and it's not like, uh, it's not pernicious. But even if it's not pernicious, this accountant is uh, taking away this person's agency. And I got to say... I just think the odds that the husband had no idea that the accountant thinks that women should not be given ownership in a business because it's their husband's jobs to provide for them financially, slim to none. I I have a feeling your husband knows, and that's at least part of the reason why he wanted to use this guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't trust this husband at all. But on the off chance that we're wrong about not trusting the husband, just you need you need a new accountant. And yeah, if there is a board to report this dude to, Get him in as much trouble as possible. Like, that is unethical. To I have, Yeah, I have no idea uh, what governs accountants or if there's like a tribunal. Um, so I think, 
I think the real conversation to be had here is with the husband. Like, obviously, I think that the accountant's worldview is awful. Um, but I don't know what recourse you have professionally. Maybe talk to that other accountant who is giving you better advice in the first place and say, like, hey, if I know that he's been withholding this important, like, end of the business deal from me because he thinks that, like, as a married woman, I don't deserve to be a part of it, what can I do? That person can help you out. But most importantly, I think, is to talk to your husband and say, like, all right, this is our business, not just your business. I want to be a partner in it as well. I want ownership of this as well. I refuse to work with this guy again. Um, I should not have let you override me the last time we talked about this, and I'm not going to let you do it now. Like, that's what needs to happen first, I think. Yeah, 100%. Time for a fried green tomatoes moment. The um, Also, like on a lighter note, I guess, it sounds like the first accountant is real old and is going to drop dead soon, so he won't be able to do this to many more people. It, by the way, it took me a second to realize what you meant by a fried green tomatoes moment because all I could think of was the thinly veiled lesbian sex scene where they're having the food fight in the kitchen. Oh, yeah, that's and a I great was like, scene. Yeah, I was like, wow, that's that's great, but I'm not sure how it would help this letter writer with her situation. Um, but I do wish her the best as she as she finds a, a sort of a Mary Louise Parker of her very own. Yeah. Um, no, I was talking about when yeah. she's yelling to Wanda and bashing down the walls of the house with a hammer. It has been a while since I've seen this movie, actually. It's I, really I good. Like, uh, you got to rewatch okay. it. Yeah, I got to give it another shot. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so step one uh, is... You get rid of this accountant. Um, and step two is you and your husband have a serious heart to heart about um, why he's been so comfortable um, kind of keeping you at arm's length around the business that you apparently both run together. Because, again, I just do not think you should take him at his word if he's like, wow, I had no idea this male accountant who I have run on, like the financial side of our business um, has a really specific idea about what wives should and shouldn't do. Um, and he has somehow never brought that up with me. I just don't think that that's likely. Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, yeah, this is going to be big. I, I I don't think this is necessarily uh, like the end of your marriage, but this is going to be a big and ongoing fight, I think. This is this is big stuff. This is secretive, hidden stuff. This has stuff to do about your husband's ability to see you as a full and equal partner in your relationship and in your business. Um, so this is not going to be like a, we fight about this for a week and then it's fine. This is going to require your full attention for a while. Yeah, for real. And I think like it's I think what the how the husband approaches this and the degree to which he takes these concerns seriously is going to have a pretty huge impact on how that all plays out. Yeah. Yeah, stay livid. You you have good reason to be livid um and and you should not back down from that lividity too soon. That's not to say you should like scream and and throw stuff, but I mean that level of this is really, really, really wrong and really serious, and I'm taking it really serious. Like, keep that. Yeah, my friend Cindy Crabb has this phrase she uses called access the rage. All right. And I feel like that's, like, that's useful in this instance. Like, and it means it's about thinking about rage and anger as, like, uh, a resource that we have and that not something that has to control us, you know? Mm -hmm. And, like, really dip into that. And if you're going to feel passionate and get upset, it's like you said, don't. Don't diminish the lividity, you know, let yourself be angry and follow through on that. Access the rage. Right. And I think there's such a, a difficulty around stuff like that, because on the one hand, you know, I think we all know ways in which anger can get really, really destructive and ways in which giving into the feeling of anger can actually just create a hunger for more feeling. For sure. Um, which is not what we're advocating here, but like anger and outrage and indignation, like in their best forms are about saying 
uh, an injustice has been committed here and attention must be paid. And that, I think, is the kind of rage that you're talking about and the kind of rage that is really important to, to hang on to, to not walk yourself back from your original position, which it sounds like you are kind of mad at yourself for having done previously, which is like, stay certain of the wrongs committed here. Say, like, here are the ways in which my boundaries, my autonomy, my personhood has not been respected, um, and I'm not going to let that one get swept under the rug. Yeah, for sure. That sounds, that's such solid advice. Yeah. Get a get a new awesome female accountant. Yeah, and then have a food fight with her. <laughs> right, and then run away together. Yeah. Um, man, this is a... Uh, yeah, and then write us back in six months and let us know how you guys are doing. Yeah, I want to hear about how everything is going in Palm Springs. <laughs> Same here. Hey, would you read the next letter? Yes. Uh, the subject is, neighbor's child is too rough. Dear Prudence, my neighbor has a preschool-aged son, Pat in quotes, presumably this is not the kid's name, who has... Presumably it is an alias, yes. Mm -hmm. um, who has some behavioral challenges. One of Pat's issues is that he turns violent when he gets excited. With no warning, he tackles other kids, yanks them down to the ground by the collar, hits, bites, etc. My preschooler tells Pat it's too rough, but Pat doesn't stop. Pat is in therapy, and I know this must be difficult for my neighbor on multiple levels. However, as he grows bigger and stronger, I'm more and more concerned that he is going to seriously injure my child or other kids on the playground, and I'm troubled by the fact that my neighbor rarely corrects him with more than a half-hearted, no, no, that's not nice. I would remove my own child from the playground for rough, violent behavior, but I don't know if that is appropriate with a developmentally challenged kid. My neighbor tries to actively foster a friendship between the kids, but my child doesn't want to play with Pat and I'm afraid to invite Pat on play dates. But I also don't want to be insensitive. What should I do? Be honest with my neighbor and say Pat's too rough? Just try to avoid them? Something else? Well, I don't know anything about parenting. I'm just going to say that right now. But I do have a dog. I appreciate that. And yeah. uh, that's... That it, I have a dog with little tiny legs. He's a dwarf bloodhound. He has, he has 70 pounds and has little four inch legs. And uh, he is a very vulnerable target for other, for the violence of other animals. And uh, mm. sometimes it can be really awkward to tell your close friend. And I want to be clear. I know this is not a one-to-one -one parallel, dog ownership and having a child. These are very different That's things. That's clear. I, you're not – I did not think that you were saying that they were one and the same. Yeah. Also, we are going to need pictures of that dog. I'll, yeah, I'll send you pictures of the dog as soon as we're off the phone. Um, Thank you. He um, – sometimes you have to tell your friend, hey, you can't bring your dog to my house because your dog is too rough with my dog and it hurts your friend's feelings. But you have – you are the steward of that dog, or I am the steward. Sometimes I have to tell, what is the second person? Sometimes I got to tell someone that I love and care about that they need to keep their dog at home and not bring it around my house because their dog's going to hurt mine. And it sucks and it's awkward between me and my friend, but I am the steward of that dog's, of that dog. I'm responsible for his safety and I have to do what I need to do to make sure that he is safe first and foremost. And I think that's the most fundamental thing to this letter. If the letter writer feels like this other kid is a danger to her child, no matter what the, um, 
kind of sympathetic circumstances around why that kid is a danger, I think it's important to just make sure your kid is safe. And yeah. that's the, that's the strongest thing that I have to say about this letter. Yeah. I, 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 I feel you there. I, I think I, I'm coming from this from a similar position. You know, the question is either should I be honest or just try to avoid them? I certainly think you should be honest rather than avoid them. Cause I think one of this, one of the things that's probably already difficult for the neighbor in question is the sense of feeling alienated and isolated from other parents and from other kids. Um, and if suddenly other people start avoiding them without making it clear as to why, um, that's just going to be unnecessarily painful. Whereas even if this conversation doesn't go well, um, at least you're not making your neighbor kind of guess, like, is this stigma? Are they just doing this because my kid is different? Um, and and that feels like that's a gift you can give this person. You can give your neighbor the gift of clarity. Um, and you can say this in a way that is not calling into question, like, how hard they're working as a parent um, or whether or not they've got a good kid, like, um, all you need to say is like, hey, Pat plays really, really rough, and sometimes my kid gets hurt, and right now the strategies that you've got for dealing with that roughness, they're not working. Um, so unless and until you're able to figure something out such that I trust that when our kids spend time together, um, you're, somebody is really carefully monitoring them and making sure that if Pat starts to get violent um, – he is like redirected or like helped or or or, or whatever he needs in that moment. Because um, again, like you're aware, it's not like he's doing that just for fun. It's not like he's just maliciously trying to hurt other kids. It sounds like he's got real issues just in terms of having um, an appropriate sense of his own strength. Um, so make it clear that you're not saying like, I think Pat is bad or I think he's vicious or mean. You're just saying right now the solutions we have are not working. And until something changes, um, I can't, you know, let our kids play together. And I don't always have the time to like monitor them 24 seven when they are together. Um, and that's, that's a fair thing to say. That's, that's, that's not, um, unnecessarily unkind. That's not, um, unnecessarily shaming and it, it prioritizes the safety of frankly both your kids like it's not good for pat if he hurts other kids and ends up getting um further isolated or hurts himself while he's fighting with another child like this is good for everybody yeah that's exactly what i was going to say honest not confrontation but just honest communication with the neighbor and the suggestion of a potential compromise that they can still play together, but only when there is the availability of an adult to have that play be highly supervised. Um, and yeah, everything that you said about not trying to alienate the neighbor any further and like making sure not to stigmatize Pat, I think is so right on and really uh, balances the compassion that it seems like the letter writer is trying to have with the concern for their own child's safety. Right. And the thing that you get to be clear about, luckily, is really within the parent's control. Like the thing you're saying is not even that like, man, even with maximal supervision and uh, restraint, Pat is still unsafe around kids. You're saying the parent's strategy right now is to sort of half-heartedly say from across the room, that's not nice. Um, and again, I'm, in my experience running this column, no parent enjoys hearing that their strategies for disciplining their children aren't working. So it's not like I think, oh, great, you can just tell your neighbor that the problem is her parenting and she'll be thrilled. Um, but, you know, you can say the strategy you have right now of saying, no, that's not nice across the room is not working. And um, if if you want our kids to play together you need to do something else. Um, that makes it really clear where the problem lies. It's not that Pat is a bad kid. Pat, Pat's dealing with a lot and Pat needs a lot of help. 
Um, and right now he's not getting the help and support that he needs from his parent. Yeah, for real. I mean, that barely works on kids just across the board, especially if you've got a kid who has a real issue um, uh, having a sense of his own strength and, and restraining some of his more violent impulses. Like if you just quietly say to a kid, that's not nice. Most kids are going to be like, thank you for the input. I will carry on with my day making my choices as I see fit. Yeah. Passive shit like that is not helpful to anyone, I don't think. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And, you know, pr be prepared for this conversation not to go great. Be prepared for Pat's parent to get defensive. Um, as long as you're able to stay kind and limit what you're saying to what you see as needing uh, as being necessary for your kid's safety. That's not your problem. That's not something that you have to take on. And if the parent gets mad or says, no, I'm doing everything great. Um, you don't have to accept that at face value. I do hope that they take it seriously because it would be terrible if, um, you know, they continued to underreact and under monitor their child. And then for Pat to, you know, seriously hurt another kid and, and potentially, um, you know, uh, experience really serious consequences himself. I hope that the parent takes this more seriously. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. All right. So I picked all these letters, by the way, before I got your bio over. So I did not even realize that I was picking something that would fall under one of your areas of expertise. Um, <laughs> not to say that you are an expert in this particular activity. Just, you know, this is uh, something that your bio mentions. So yeah, I should sure. have gotten this in a pizza one. Um, that would have been that would have been perfect. So the subject uh, is drunk driving. And this is the letter. Dear Prudence. Many years ago, my aunt's sister was killed by a drunk driver, and she left behind two children and three grandchildren. The woman who killed her had racked up several DUIs prior to the accident and is about to be released from prison now. I live in a state that's very drinking-centric. Many people make jokes about drinking and driving, and many actually do it, including some of my friends, and play it off with, well, I got home okay. Each time my friends tell me this, I go off on them about how irresponsible it is and how they are risking their lives and the lives of others, even going so far as reporting my roommate's boyfriend to the court for violating his bail because he was regularly driving drunk and high while staying in my apartment. The problem is that most of my friends don't take this issue seriously. I don't know how to proceed with these friendships because I've had very few friends and don't want to lose these that I have. But at the same time, every time they talk about this, it brings up so many bad memories. I mean, this is killer. Yeah, I wasn't, I did not expect the turn that this letter took. Yeah? Yeah, like I, at the opening, my aunt's sister was killed by a drunk driver. I didn't think this letter mm -hmm. was going to be, how do I deal with my shitty, insensitive friends who regularly goad me about a traumatic aspect of my life? Right, right, right. Like you felt like it was maybe going to be, how do I talk to the kids or what am I yeah. Yeah. Who know? I don't know where I thought it was going to go, but definitely did not. I mean, I think the thing is, um, I, you know, living in New York for most of my life, I grew up in the suburbs. Um, I did a fair amount of driving drunk when I was a teenager and I'm not proud of that at all. It was, hmm. um, like truly awful. And I'm just so lucky that all the times I was like barreling down the FDR at, you know, 70 miles per hour blacked out, nothing happened. Um, but then as an adult, you know, I lived in the boroughs at pretty much as soon as I graduated high school and you don't have to drive in New York. And so I never, it's like anachronistic for someone to drive drunk there, at least in my social circles, everyone just took public transit or rode bikes or whatever. I rode my bike wasted all the time. I got really hurt doing that a couple of times. But um, when I moved, when I went to Texas, and I started realizing that like after 
like 11 p.m., everyone on the highway was probably a little tipsy. I was working the door at a nightclub and I'd get home really like I'd be going home really late. And there was just like people swerving all over the roads all the time. And I, I was totally out of touch with the amount of drunk driving that goes on in places where you need a car to get around. Right. It's really dependent on the kind of place that you live. Cause if you live in a, a major city like New York, where there's a lot of public transit, um, it, it's not the same problem. Um, and there's this kind of sense of like, oh yes, drunk driving is bad. I don't really need to drive. Not a problem. Um, and then, you know, I've lived in like suburban Illinois and suburban Los Angeles, um, and the Bay area and a lot of places where most people drive most of the time. Um, and there are often like subcultures where there's this sort of normalization of drunk driving and like, yes, 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 it's bad. Yes, of course, we're right to stigmatize it. But what I do isn't really drunk driving. Um, I am one of those magical people who becomes more careful when they're drunk. Um, and I, you know, blast the air conditioning and I roll the windows down and I check my mirrors every three seconds and I'm doing great. Um, and you are, you know, uh, if you are concerned about me, that is at best sweet and misguided and at worst being nosy and a busybody and um, none of your business. Yeah, but I, we're not going to fix drunk driving, right? And what this person is asking about is their friends who drive drunk all the time and talk to them about it. Yeah. Right? Like that's the question here. And it seems to me like I – I hesitate to say this so cavalierly, but maybe try to make some new friends because these people sound shitty. I don't think that's cavalier at all. I mean, especially if these people know that this person has like lost a family member to drunk driving, um, that they would repeatedly not only do it, but bring it up and brag about it. Um, that's pretty cruel. Right. Like the least you if it's like if they live in a place where drunk driving is just sort of part of the fabric of that place. And that's just a thing that they've accepted, even though they're fr- like the least they could do is just not talk about it to this one person who clearly has a very distinct boundary. And it seems like anyone bringing this up to this person is deliberately trying to goad them or push buttons in a way that it just doesn't seem like these people like bar even if they none of them stop drunk driving. Even if they all continue to drive drunk as much as they do now, right? Like assuming that that's not going to change. Uh, the fact that they're talking about it to the letter writer like this, uh, it feels to me like not just a lack of care, but like a deliberate attempt to kind make of sadistic. Her fe- or them feel bad. Yeah. Yeah. And and I would say, too, even though there can be like subcultures where it's just like, yes, this is super normal. It's also I just, you know. Everyone where you live does not do this. This is not something that 100% of people are doing 100% of the time. And if part of the reason that this, like, group has group cohesion is because everyone sort of, like, enables and supports various bad behaviors by making it sound like, well, everybody does this. This is totally normal. Anyone who doesn't do this is absolutely unreasonable. Um, That's just not the case. Um, There are lots of people who live in your state and who do not regularly drive drunk. And it's, you know, not an unreasonable thing to ask of people. Um, So I I do think, you know, certainly if you think it's worth one last shot saying to your friends, like, hey, you know, I've lost a family member to this. I've seen people's lives ruined by this. Um, 
if you continue to bring up drunk driving around me, I can only conclude uh, that you enjoy reminding me of the death of a family member um, and remembering how much this tore my family apart um, and that you do not actually care about me or want me to be well. Um, and so if you do it again, I will know what to think about our friendship. Um, and just make those terms really clear. Um, don't let them kind of pretend that they're just having a good time. Like make it really, really clear what they're staking on this. Um, and if they choose to continue talking about this, then you know. And as painful as that would be and as awful as it is, um, especially as somebody who you say uh, you haven't had a lot of friends in your life. Um, but I just think like the toll that this is clearly taking on you um, and this sense that I have to put up with almost any treatment from these people because I don't know if I'll get to make friends again. Um, that's just unbelievably painful. And I don't want that for you. And that's just those are not good friends. Yeah, I think setting a firm boundary, it seems like this person is not ready to just cut the cord. And I relate to that. And I don't think that that's, and there's anything wrong with that. But I think, yeah, setting a firm boundary, I probably would not have phrased it as politely and diplomatically and eloquently as you did. Um, but I think that's an important next step. And if the boundary is not respected, then like, uh, go find the like books to prisoners or whatever volunteering situation you can find in your city and maybe you'll meet a nice person there you know like there's plenty of places to make friends um, yeah and you know and i i used to say stuff like that having lived in the same place my whole life where like my newer friends were people that i'd known for 10 or 15 years um but i've moved across the country twice in the past two years and i really do feel like uh making new friends is scary and lonesome but it also is definitely possible and there are um like there was a book club at a bookstore that i joined in austin and like met the guy that owned the bookstore and a bunch of people that you know what i mean there's like all kinds of ways to meet people uh that might share similar interests to you or like i was saying like a letters to prisoners kind of thing for me whenever i've been traveling in a new city and i'm feeling lonesome finding some kind of activist thing to just show up to one day where they just need bodies um, is uh, is usually a helpful way to like end up going to dinner with somebody afterwards. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I don't know what kind of friends you're hoping to make or what kind of places you could go to make them. Um, but I do think that it will feel better to not have to deal with these kind of conversations constantly. And I have to say, if you've already gotten to the point where you have felt like you needed to report your roommate's boyfriend um, for drinking and driving, my guess is this is going to come to a head sooner rather than later anyways. Like if you're already willing to take that kind of a stand um, and this group is that, you know, deliberately enjoying crowing about their frequent drunk driving escapades, this is just going to come up whether you initiate that conversation or not. So you might as well set the terms. Yeah, for sure. This is going to boil over. Yeah, I'm just really sorry. What you've experienced is terrible. What your friends are doing is terrible. The way that they're bringing it up to you is terrible. Um, and I'm really, really sorry. And I hope that you are able to find friends who uh, manage to not drink and drive on a regular basis um, and who actually care about the pain that you have experienced. Yeah, I, I wish there was more controversy in this. I just agree with everything you're saying. You know, it's one of those things that's like kind of hard to um, play the devil's advocate on or to see both sides of. Um, yeah, that's just it is what it is. Yeah, for sure. All right. Would you uh, read this last letter? Yeah, um, with I would be delighted to read this one. Um, 
Subject, my home. Dear Prudence, my stepson has recently come back from college with his girlfriend. Again, we got quotes around a name, so I'm guessing this is not the real name. Kate. Kate wants to save the world. An admirable notion, but she's more interfering and opinionated than my first mother-in-law. Uh, everything in my home is up for improvement. I should stop buying bottled water. Recycle more. Have a vegetable garden instead of flowers and a lawn. Stop taking baths, etc. Sorry, stop taking baths. Uh, I have tried laughing off Kate's suggestions, saying I will take it under advisement, and finally telling Kate to her face, she is welcome to live her life the way she wants to, and I will live mine the way I want to. That offended her delicate sensibilities, and she is currently sulking and sending my stepson to a tizzy. I work from home, so I interact with both of them the most. Kate is 22, and my stepson is 20, but this is his first serious girlfriend. Neither of them are working beyond online social activism, nor paying for anything. We bought Kate's plane ticket. They will be here until August. How do I get some family harmony? I am happy to have a difference of opinion, but I'm tired of the moralizing and mood swings. Oh, man. Oh, letter writer, you have uh, all of the power in this situation. This is uh, your house. You invited them to stay. They don't pay rent. You can tell them to go away. You can not buy her plane tickets in the future. Like, um, uh, you know, you, you, you've got a lot more options here uh, than the handful you've already tried. Yeah, for real. But also stop buying bottled water, letter writer. You don't need that. Um, yeah, I mean, that is... I, I, it's 2018. That does feel very 80s. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, you know, I relate to everyone in this letter. Sure. Uh, so deeply. Like, I relate to being an idealistic person in my 20s who just, like, wants to fix everything, but doesn't actually... Uh, I had a job when I was 22, but, you know, everyone's different. Um but, you know, it's like, uh, I get it. I get the, like, I'm 22 and I, or I'm 20 or whatever, and I know everything, and I'm going to tell everybody how to live their lives. And I also, as a 35-year-old who is still involved in, um, like, uh, wing-nutty, left-leaning activist circles, and I am, I engage with those same 22-year-olds on a semi-regular basis, I know how frustrating it is to be like, Hey, listen, I bought my soda stream before I knew that they were manufactured in an Israeli apartheid factory. I'm sorry, but I'm not going to throw it away or whatever. And by the way, I changed. I don't get the CO2 from soda stream. BDS all the way. Uh, right. Or like the idea that uh, individuals recycling is uh, the way that we're going to like deal with pollution um, or climate change as opposed to like dealing with the hundred or so companies that are much more largely responsible for that sort of thing. So like there's a you know, there's a lot there. Right. It's like I get I, I understand Kate's desire to like try to affect change in the ways that she can or whatever. But also like it seems like um, the letter writer has. I wonder if the letter writer is as bad at um, masking her palpable resentment towards Kate in conversation as she was in the writing of this letter. And I actually thought she was remarkably restrained. Really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. She's like, you know, 
I get it. I get where Kate's coming from, but it's a lot. Kate's putting her ore in all over the house um, and like using up all the household resources and not contributing anything and is apparently happy to fly, um, you know, commercial airplanes, um, but uh, also wants to tell everyone else how to cut down. Um, I'd resent the hell out of this kid, too. Yeah, that's Um, that's fair. Um, But yeah, yeah, I think if Kate if Kate can't handle a conversation that where the letter writer says, I respect your um, difference of opinion, but I'm going to live my life the way I want. And I am like, welcome you to live yours the way you want to. That's like, that's not an adult. That's such a, that's such an easy thing for everyone to agree with. And like personal autonomy should be the foundation of any liberatory philosophy. I feel like so bums me out that the letter writer wants to use water bottles or whatever, but like who, what am I going to do about that? Um, yeah, there's, there's a limit to how often you can bother someone about that before it just gets to a, a point where I think it's important to ask yourself, like, is this a battle worth fighting? Especially if this person is also letting me live in their home rent free. Yeah. Um, also, Kate, what's wrong with taking a bath? It uses less water than the shower half the time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, for the letter writer, in terms of what can I do, you have a couple of options. Yes. Um, you can tell your son that while he stays at home for the summer, he needs to get a job and that he needs to pitch in around the house. Um, and that the same goes for any guests he wants to bring. You can also in the future decide whether or not you want to host whoever your son is dating for an entire summer. You don't have to do that just because your son has a serious girlfriend. You can decide whether or not that's something that you are available for. Um, you also don't have to buy the girl a ticket. Um, you know, those are all really reasonable things to say, hey, you are 20 and 22. Um, either you figure out how to pay for it or you don't do it. Um, so some of the resentment, I think, could be directed towards yourself and saying, what uh, adult roles uh, should my son be playing in his own life that I am taking on for him? For sure. Um, um, yeah, time to cut the apron strings because this... It seems like the, all the ways, um, like Kate is currently sulking and sp- sending my stepson into a tizzy. The parenthesis about this is his first serious girlfriend. There's a lot of like uh, my baby boy subtext here. Yes, and your baby boy's twenty and needs to be responsible for himself, as does Kate. You know, and yeah, I think that's really smart. Tell them they need to get jobs, or they need to yeah. like contribute something to the household. Definitely, you don't have to do this again. Uh, I don't know about, I mean, and if Kate keeps whining, you can just be like, cool, I'm buying you a plane ticket home. Like, yeah, that's, that's easy. Yeah, you can absolutely do that. And in the meantime, if she starts to, you know, go in on those things, you can just say, hey, Kate, we've already had this conversation. I've told you that I'd like you to drop it. Um, I'm going to need you to stop. Um that's that's just going to be the next way that you do it. And if she gets really upset and sulks and your stepson gets really upset, that's OK. Um, you know, th- at that point, you can say like, hey, guys, you don't have to love this, but this is how it is in the future. If you'd rather live somewhere else and make your own decisions around that, you're absolutely free to do so. Um, but don't don't feel like it's your responsibility to make sure that they're both really, really happy. Um, and in the future, if this is not working for you, don't spend all this money on them. Yeah. Plain and simple. Spend that money on a nicer bathtub. Get a bigger bathtub. Get yourself one of those backyard saunas. That's like, that costs about a plane ticket. 
I, I, I do wish that we could kind of take just like a home improvement aspect <laughs> of each one of these letters and just figure out like, what should you do to your deck in order to like fix this situation? Yeah. Um, Put in central air. That'll make your, uh, your family harmony increased. I feel like Kate would object to that um, on account of, I, I, I cannot imagine that central air is good for the environment. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, but you do have a lot of options. You have exercised only like 2% of them. Um, and and I, I think it will feel good to exercise some more and to remember that you are doing them both a pretty big favor by letting them stay with you over the summer. Um, and you do not have to just let them do whatever they want. Um, Colin, uh, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been delightful. Um, my producer said that before I let you go, I should ask you if you have any pizza recommendations, um, which I imagine is just like, do you recommend pizza? I do recommend pizza. Actually, I will say, um, there's a spot in the Bay in San Francisco on, uh, it's on 23rd, I want to say either 23rd or 21st in San Carlos, right between Valencia and Mission. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget the name of it. I think it's something with an, it's like an Italian sounding name. They do a big old slice. An uh, Italian sounding name. Pizza yeah. Like it's a guy's last name. It's not like, cause there's like that escape from New York pizza. And there's the one in Berkeley that has the vegan slices that all the punks work at. That's garbage. Um, Lane splitter. No, Lane splitter's All right. No, there's this like, Lane splitter it, has a couple of vegan slices that are pretty solid. Yeah. Lane splitter is good. Um, but, you know, there, I forget the name of the place, but there's this one spot. Max just asked if it was Serrano's. Serrano's. Yeah, it is Serrano's. Serrano's has Apparently Max a sliced harvester approved it. slice of pizza in the Bay Area. Okay, fair enough. Oh, that's right. Well, Max I, Max is moving shortly to uh, New York City, the home of um, Pizza Pies. Oh, well, New York recommendations, Pizza Suprema on 31st Street and 8th Avenue. Best slice of pizza, hands down, in Manhattan. New Park Pizza on Cross Bay Boulevard and Howard Beach on the way out to Rockaways. Uh, that is probably the best plain slice in the entire world, like New York-style slice. It's truly something else. All right, Max, you heard it here first. And if anyone else has benefited from these uh, pizza recommendations, uh, remember you can always uh, buy Colin some Gucci slippers to uh, show your appreciation. Yeah, buy me a Gucci loafer. Follow my dog on Instagram, at Gus underscore forever. Colin, thank you so much for coming on the show. Appreciate you. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401 371 dear That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds. A minute tops. Thanks for listening.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.